Last Sunday morning was a special Sunday morning. Last Sunday morning, many of you by faith walked down front to confess your sins before God and and you experienced grace. And I'm sure that throughout this week you have experienced God's grace as well. And as I mentioned, it's our hope this morning that as we open God's Word that each one of us will come to understand God's grace a little better and that this morning together we would experience God's grace. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul kind of gives, gives us a definition of how grace works when he writes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sins are added one by one, Grace is multiplied in abundant excess, which means when we sin, our sin, and even because of our sin, God gives each one of us grace. Now, last week should have raised a question for you last week probably raised a question for most of you. When Paul writes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, the question, the obvious question that follows that is, well, if grace increases when I sin, why shouldn't I just sin some more? Because if I sin more, doesn't that mean that I'm going to receive more of God's unmerited favor and more of God's blessing? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So if I sin more, I receive more grace. Now at this point, some of you are thinking, this may be the best sermon I am ever going to hear. Is he going to say... All I have to do is sin more to receive more grace? So, should you sin more? Well, Paul asks and addresses that very question in Romans chapter 6. So, if you take your Bibles and open it to Romans chapter 6. It's found on page 914 in the Bible that the church provides. If you picked one up on your way in, page 914. If you have your own Bible, please open it up to Romans 6 because we're going to walk through the first 14 verses of the chapter of chapter 6 of Romans this morning. It'll be helpful if you follow along. In Romans 6 verse 1, Paul asks the obvious question. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, not only is that an obvious question, I'd like you to notice two other things about that question. First, not only is the question obvious, the question is logical. This is a logical question to ask after what Paul has just written in the end of Romans chapter 5. If grace increases when I sin, why not sin more? It's a good question to ask. Many of you over this past week have asked that question. We have received emails asking that question. There's something about God's grace that often causes us to ask the question that if my sins are not going to separate me from Jesus, then why not just sin? Why should I not just keep doing them? That's a perfectly logical question to ask. And then second, not only is it a logical question, it's a natural question. That's because sin, basically, is fun. Sin, basically, is fun, at least at first. So it is a logical question to ask. Now, think about this with me. Sin, basically, is fun. Otherwise, we would not continue to sin. But each one of us somewhere thinks that, hey, this is going to work out well. Hey, I am going to enjoy this. Therefore, we continue to sin. And therefore, this kind of thought that more sin equals more grace 
becomes obvious, not only obvious, not only logical, but natural to act, to ask, because it arouses in us amount of, an amount of interest. So it's a natural thing. It's a natural question that should come up. And Paul knows that the question is obvious. Paul knows that the question is logical. And Paul knows that the question is natural. So he immediately asks it before his critics can complain. If we get more grace than when we sin, then why not just go on sinning? You see that phrase there, go on sinning? That phrase, go on sinning, means to stay in sin. The Greek word for go on sinning is in the present continuous tense. It means that it just keeps happening. It's the idea of having habitual sin in our lives. It's the idea of having a lifestyle of sin. It's not just one sin now and then. To go on sinning means I am living a life of habitual sin. I am going on sinning. The Bible has, there's a, there's a Bible paraphrase that says this verse in a different way. It, it says, shall we sin to our heart's content and see how we can exploit the grace of Jesus? Now what's interesting is there's some people that would actually answer yes to this question. These people are referred to as antinomians. Now, it's kind of a big word. It's kind of a seminary word. Anti means against. Nomos means the law. So an antinomian is a person who is against following the law in thought or in lifestyle. Have you heard somebody say, I'm saved, but I can still sin because God will forgive me? That is an antinomian way of thinking. And unfortunately... There are some of us in the church who think this way. Now, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but we think to ourselves, well, everybody else is doing it. Why can't I just do it? God is going to forgive me anyway. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I just want to be happy, so I am going to do this? Because God's grace, his favor, his blessing, he will forgive me. These are people who pervert grace and cheapen grace. And Paul in no way wants to pervert or cheapen grace. So what Paul does in the rest of Romans chapter 6, actually through verse 14, is Paul gives us three answers to his question. He gives us three answers to his question. The question, remember, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And in verse 2, we see Paul's highly emotional response to his own question. You can hear his sense of outrage as you kind of read the response. Look at what he says. He says, by no means, strongly negative. You can translate this, may it never be, perish the thought, God forbid. Paul rejects this idea, this concept in the strongest of terms. It's impossible. It's absurd. It's inconceivable and inconsistent for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, to persist in sinning to get more grace. So the first answer is grace cannot lead to sin. Grace cannot lead to sin. And then in the rest of verse 2, Paul explains to us why grace cannot lead to sin. Look at verse 2. We died to sin... How can we live in it any longer? Now look at that phrase, we died to sin. And in your Bibles, I'd like you to underline the word died. Underline the word died. Now, not in the church Bible. Actually, you can do it there if you want. I don't really care. <laughs> underline the word died in your Bible. That word is the key to understanding this whole chapter. It is the key to understanding living the Christian life. Now notice that that word died is in the past tense. It's not in the present tense, we are dying to sin. It's not in the future tense, we will die to sin. It's not in an imperative or instruction, die to sin. It's not in an exhortation, you should die to sin. It is in the past tense. 
you have died to sin. Now, died to sin means that you have been set free from the ruling power of sin in your life. You are no longer a slave to sin. Sin no longer controls you. You are now free because you have died to sin. You are now free not to sin. That's what it means when Paul tells us that we have died to sin. It means you do not have to sin any longer. Now, in fact, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you cannot sin and be happy. You cannot continue to live in sin and be happy. Sin and the Christian cannot ultimately coexist together. And if you continue in sin as a Christian one of three things will happen. Number one, it won't work. Number one, it won't work. The things that made you happy, the things that brought you pleasure, the lust, the anger, the envy, the gluttony, the gossip, these things that used to make you happy will no longer give you pleasure. You will no longer be happy when you sin. So as a follower of Jesus, if you choose to remain in sin, number one, it won't work. Number two, God won't allow it. God will not allow it. Now, God might not keep you, might not stop you from sinning, but he will stop you from continuing in the sin. He will not allow you to continue to leave in sin if you are his follower, which means he will do one of two things. He will either make your life so miserable that you beg to get out of the sin, you beg for forgiveness, or he will end your life prematurely. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be able to continue in sin because it won't work. God will not allow it. And the third reason why you will not be able to continue in sin is this, that if you reject your life, if you continue, excuse me, to live in your life of sin, and if you're able to continue in it and not leave it, it means that you were never saved. See, if you are able to continue in your life of sin and you never feel a conviction from God, you never feel a pull towards repentance, you never feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, this type of indifference, this type of spiritual indifference likely means that you were never saved in the first place. So if you're a Christian and you are continuing in sin, number one, it will not work. It won't work. Number two, God will not allow it. And number three, if you're able to continue in sin, it likely means that you were never saved in the first place. So as Christians, Paul's first answer to us is that grace cannot lead to sin because we have died to sin. And now Paul is beginning to ramp up his argument and he gives us the second answer to the question. And the second answer is, is that God's grace gives life. God's grace gives life. Look at, verse, look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You see, Paul reinforces here the truth that we are dead in sin, and he is setting up his next point. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Paul says here that something happens. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are identified with Jesus in his death. Here, note that this word baptized does not mean immersed in water. It means to identify with. We are baptized in Jesus into his death. We identify with Jesus in his death. But now look. Not only am I dead to sin, but now I am alive in Jesus. Look at verse 4. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism. That's the identification. Into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, we had to die with him. Look at that little phrase in verse 4. We had to die with him in order that we could have a new life. In other words, A comes before B. When I put my faith in Jesus, there is a death that is going to occur. I am going to identify with Jesus' death, and this has to happen in order that I am able to experience new life in Jesus. And this word for new here means qualitatively, completely, all brand new. New life in Christ. But here is where it gets really interesting. Because not only do we identify with Jesus, but Paul goes a step further. Follow as I read in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Then he ramps it up. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For, excuse me, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So not only do we identify with Christ, we are also united with Jesus. Now, this is a big deal. Let me explain. When I say that I identify with someone, it means that I am like that person or I want to be like that person. It means our identities are similar or they are growing in similarities. That's the concept of identification. I could put it this way. You guys have heard of Steph Curry. Many of you. Some of you have heard of Steph Curry. He's the shooting guard for the Golden State Warriors. Some say that Steph Curry is the best three-point shooter ever in the NBA. Some people say he's the best shooter of all times. Well, I can tell you that I identify with Steph Curry. Why are you all laughing? That kind of hurts. I'm about 6'3", Steph Curry's about 6'3". Steph Curry has this smooth, quick release, this incredible shooting stroke. I, well, I don't. <laughs> but the idea is, is that in identification, I can be, I, I, I think at least, that I'm like Steph Curry or I want to be like Steph Curry. Now, maybe this is the anti-example, but the idea in identity is that I'm like someone or I am growing in likeness in the similarities that we have. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we identify with Christ. We are like Christ or we want to be more and more like Christ. So when people look at you as a Christian, when they look at me, they see Jesus. That is our identification with Christ. But what Paul does is he takes it a step further. Look at verse 5. It says that we are united with him in death and united with him in his resurrection. You see, we not only have identification with Christ, we have union with Christ. This means that we are in Christ now, throughout the New Testament, you'll come across those two words quite frequently, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him. What that means is that we have union with Jesus. In verse 5, that word united, that means to graft a branch into another. To graft a branch into 
another. Now, some of you understand plants. Some of you understand trees. This is a term from botany, the idea of grafting. And what it essentially is, is you take a branch from one tree and you graft it, you put it into another tree. We have an example here of the beginning of a graft. You have a tree, you take a branch from another tree and you graft it into this original tree. And you tie it, you bind it tightly together. And what happens is, is the life from the tree flows into the branch that has been grafted in until eventually the branch that has been grafted in is indistinguishable from the tree that it has joined. The branch and the tree are now one. The life of the tree has bled into the branch, has grown into the branch, and united the tree so that now there is one tree. This is the figure that Paul is using here in chapter 6 of Romans to explain our relationship with Jesus. Not only is it identification that I'm like Christ or I want to be like Christ, it is union with Christ. I have been grafted into Christ so his power, his life flows into me and we become one, indistinguishable from each other. The life of Christ is in you as a follower of Jesus because you have union with Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Him. Do you understand what this means? You have life. And not only you have the life that Christ gives through His grace, you have the power that He gives. Paul says here you have died with Christ, you have experienced death in His crucifixion, and you are now going to experience life in His resurrection. Paul intentionally labels this life in His resurrection because you and I as followers of Jesus experience the resurrection power. The power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is now in you and in me because we are in Christ. And we are indistinguishable from Christ. You have his life in you. So this is exciting. This is something that you all should be smiling about, maybe even shouting about, because we have life. You see, grace cannot lead to sin because you have died to Christ. But the consequences of that is that grace gives life. And you have that life. It's really troublesome to me it's really kind of problematic when you hear people say that Christianity is really negative or Christianity isn't fun at all, that it's just a bunch of don'ts. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't hook up, don't wear the wrong clothes, don't wear the wrong things, don't say, don't, 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 don't. That is not Christianity at all. Christianity is life. Because you are in Christ, because you are growing in Christ and his life and his power is in you, you have freedom. You have life that is full and meaningful and bountiful. The sin, the sin that is fun for just a short time, ends up being painful. It ends up being destructive. It's disappointing. It's hurtful. We all know this in our minds and in our hearts. We know that sin is pain and hurt. Our experience confirms this for us. So God says, no, but recognize that in Christ you have life, and that life is full 
And that life is free. Now I know. I know that that many of us here this morning are struggling with sin. Or you're struggling with some aspect of life and you say to yourself or you kind of looking at me and thinking to yourself, man, that's easy for you to get up and say, grace cannot lead to sin because I've died to sin. And no, I shouldn't go on sinning because grace is life. I know it's difficult. And I know that there are times when each one of us fails. But the great thing here is not only does Paul tell us that we've died to sin, not only does Paul tell us that grace brings life, but he gives us a third answer to the question. And the third answer to the question is that grace, grace calls us to action. Grace calls us to action, action that helps us live the life that God has for us. In verse 11, for the first time in the book of Romans, a command is given. We have gone through six chapters of the book of Romans, and this is the first time that we have seen a command. We have seen instruction, we have seen discussion, we have seen deliberation, conversation on Paul's part, an analysis of the problem of of sin, of grace, of what God has done. We've seen him testify to the promises that God offers, but now, now because we're united with Jesus Christ, we're given a command. In fact, we're given three commands here in these last few verses of this first half of the book of of chapter 6 of Romans. We now have to do something because now we're united with Christ and we have life and we have his power. Verse 11, the first command is found in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first thing you have to do is you have to count yourself dead to sin. So our response, the thing we have to do, is first apply this truth to our lives. Now, this is not just true for pastors. It's not just true for Jim Samra. It's not just true for missionaries. It's not just true for old people. It's true for each and every one of us here this morning that we have to count ourselves dead to sin and alive in God. This means you need to consider it. You need to think about it. You need to believe it. You need to count this for yourself. That means that every day, maybe even dozens of times a day, you need to go around saying and thinking to yourself, I am united with Christ. I am his. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am now in Christ, and his life and his power is mine. Every day, multiple times a day, not just on Sunday morning, not just when we gather here together to worship, to sing, to open God's word, but every day you need to consciously count, consider, believe, say that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. The second command, verse 12. The second command logically follows the first. Verse 12, therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You and I, we must make a conscious choice to not let sin reign. We must make a choice not to obey evil desires. Now, I can't make that choice for you. You can't make the choice for me. I have to make the choice for myself, and you have to make the choice for yourself. The point is, is that you have to choose it. You have to make the choice. You have to stop sinning. When you were in sin's control, you no longer had the power to stop sinning. Now you are no longer a slave to sin because you have died to sin. Now you have the choice to stop sinning. Now, I know that this is difficult. I know that it's tough. And many times we fail. We fail to make the right choice. Sometimes we make the wrong choice. 
But we have to make the choice to stop living in that which God has already declared to be dead. God has claimed, he has declared that you have died to sin and you are alive in Christ. But so many times we come up with excuses, don't we? We have all these excuses that we, that we kind of say that we think about. We say things like, oh, I have a hot temper. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have, I have a hot temper. I'm just going to sin. You know, it's because I'm Dutch. Or, <laughs> or you know, I really struggle with lust. I, I can't stop, I can't stop touch, touching, I can't stop watching. Oh, I can't just, it's because I'm Dutch. Or I'm too old. Or I'm too young. Or you ever heard the person say, you know, this is just the sin area that I struggle with and I kind of just have to get used to it. Never going to really be able to deal with this one. There are so many excuses. And what Paul is saying here is not only do you have to count it, do you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ, but you have to make the choice. You have to choose not to sin. You have to choose not to let sin reign in your mortal body. And remember, sin is ultimately pain and hurt and disappointment and discouragement. So choose to stop it. Count yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Two, choose to stop the sin. Do not let it reign in your mortal body. But you want to know something? Those two are not enough. It's just not enough to think about who we are in Christ, and it's not enough just to choose to not sin. That's why Paul gives us the third thing that we should do. And it's found in verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You must offer yourself to God. We must learn to say no by saying no. Yes. Write that down. You and I must learn to say no by saying yes. You and I have to offer ourselves. It means to give ourselves over. Our mind, our will, our emotions, our actions, our thoughts, everything about who you are and who I am, we must give ourselves over to Jesus. We must say no by saying yes. This means that you begin by counting on Jesus to help you in everything you do. Tying your shoe, arguing a case, witnessing to somebody, painting a house, working on somebody in an operation, plumbing a plumb line, whatever it is you are doing, count on Jesus to help you. But it means more than just counting on Jesus to help you do the things that you are choosing to do. Offering yourself to Jesus means giving all of yourself over to him in the things that he wants you to do. So that means that you and I, we have to ask Jesus what he wants us to do. So ask Jesus what he wants you to do. That means that praying, studying, reading the word of God is offering yourself to Jesus because that is something that he wants you to do. But it goes further than reading, studying, and praying Offering yourself to Jesus also means to offer yourself in action to things that are near and dear to his heart. It's what it means to be an instrument of righteousness, that I'm actually going to do something for Jesus. I'm going to offer myself in action. This past week, throughout our nation, there has been significant violence, crazy stuff going on. 
Citizens killing police. Police killing citizens. This is not good. How are you going to become an instrument of righteousness and bring Jesus' love and peace into a situation that is near and dear to God's heart, that you would be an instrument of righteousness, that you would be concerned about the weak, the poor, the disenfranchised, that you would offer yourself in action to Jesus by saying no, by saying yes. We're in an election cycle. We're coming up upon conventions. In November, we're going to have a general election. We have a seemingly two candidates for president who seemingly are lacking in, are lacking in, in key character. Let's just be honest. What does it mean to be an instrument of righteousness? How are you going to be Jesus and bring Jesus' love and his wisdom into that situation? See, there are things that are near and dear to God's heart. And when we are followers of Jesus, when you count yourself dead to sin, when you're not letting sin reign in your mortal body, it means that you need to also offer yourself to Christ. That you need to do the things that are near and dear to God's heart as an instrument of righteousness. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you are an instrument of righteousness. You are to bring Jesus' love, Jesus' peace, Jesus' wisdom into any and all situations that you are in and to any and all situations that God calls you to. Grace is undeserved. It's God's unmerited favor. It is his blessing and it flows out of God because he is a gracious God and it flows to all who are followers of Jesus Christ and grace cannot lead to sin because you have died to sin. And grace brings life because you are united with Christ and grace calls each one of us to action as instruments of righteousness. And I promise you, if you live in this grace, if you live in this life, you will experience a God who is bigger, more wonderful, more beautiful than anything you could ever imagine, and you will experience a life that is full, a life that is free, and you will experience the power of God in such a way that things that are seemingly impossible will happen all around you. In Christ, we have life. And now, I am going to ask Scott and Jody to join me up here on the platform. Scott and Jody are going to share with you a part of their story, a part of their story that is going to help you understand the grace of God. Jody and I were married in the fall of 1997. We were best friends. However, I would describe our marriage in the beginning as average. God blessed us with four amazing children. I became very focused on building my business and dealing with all the pressures that came along with that and providing for my family. Jody and I would argue over things that seemed in insignificant. A statement like, why is the grocery bill so high this week, would turn into a fight. Jody would try to explain how she didn't feel loved by me, and I just felt like I wanted to know why the grocery bill was so high. <laughs> no, what, no, wonder, no matter what the argument was about, it always ended the same way. Jody felt unloved and I and not cherished. She would describe to me how she didn't think I ever really fell in love with her at all. Scott was physically present in our marriage. I just didn't feel like I had his heart. We were best friends raising our kids and I saw Scott trying. He was really home all the time. He wasn't the kind of husband that was on a golf league or out every night with the guys. 
I couldn't get on top of this feeling of being lonely. Something was missing, and it didn't matter how hard I tried. I just couldn't squeeze one more drop of love out of Scott. After our last child was born, I started meeting a girlfriend at the gym. We would meet at 5 a.m. so I wouldn't mess up the kids' schedule during the day. These workouts in the wee early morning hours led to an inappropriate relationship with a man. It was not a physical relationship. It was, in fact, at any given point, I could easily explain away that the relationship was purely friendship. I wasn't looking for this. I don't even think I desired it. However, I know in my heart that it crossed the boundary lines of marriage, and it was filling a void that I had. So I guess you'd call it an emotional affair. I clearly remember a night in January of 2015. Scott and I were not getting along, and I was sick of the same pattern of arguing. I remember going to bed talking to God. I had always felt the hand of God guiding me in a different direction, but I continued to fall into the trap of a generational curse. I wanted to make the change, but it was just so much easier to stay in the path of those that went before me. No matter how hard I tried, I could see that my marriage and family was starting to mirror the destruction that was in my heritage. So I asked God to please help me to be a godly wife. He was clear in his instruction. He showed me how I was trying to take the leadership role in our family. I was arguing and fighting for my way in so many circumstances. And God reminded me that I was created to be Scott's helper. I was not made to be the leader. This hit me like a ton of bricks. I was not helping my husband at all. I was working against him in every situation. This is why I was so discontent. I wasn't successful in what I was trying to be, the leader. Of course, I wasn't supposed to be the leader. So God asked me to close my mouth and to not argue with Scott anymore. And he asked me to stop talking to this other guy. I did stop talking to the other guy, and I practiced keeping my mouth shut. I would feel peace in the moment, but the circumstances didn't really change. I just kept pouring my heart out to God, and I realize now that this was the very first step in the right direction. I began to be obedient. In February of 2015, our family was in Florida on vacation. I came home to work for a week. During that week, God was working on me through a series of events. It all came together on Sunday, March 8, with Jim's sermon on the Lord's discipline. During the service, I was convicted. Jim asked us to come to the altar to confess the sins in our lives. I was almost picked up out of my seat. As I prayed, I knew it had to do with Jody and our marriage, but I didn't fully understand why I was there. God revealed to me that I didn't love Jody the way I was supposed to. I told God that I was holding back because I didn't want to get hurt if I gave her my all. I confessed that I had never healed from a previous relationship and was holding out on Jody because I did not want to be vulnerable again. In a sense, it was my pride stopping me from loving her 100%. I can't explain it, but something switched inside of me. I loved my wife differently. After the service, immediately after the service, I flew back to Florida. I saw Jody in a new way. I realized going to the altar was my first act of obedience. By the time Scott back, by the time Scott, back and Scott got back to Florida, I had received a letter from him that he had written in the plane. He explained what had happened to him the week that he was home and how the church service had affected him. He confessed that he hasn't loved me like he should have and that he was sorry. I was skeptical, but after spending a few days with him, I saw that there was a huge change in our marriage, and I could tell that it wasn't a fleeting change of heart, that it really was an act of God healing his heart. Four weeks later, I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Jody's diagnosis was just devastating to me. I cried more in, f in the few weeks than I had in 40 years. 
I walked around for weeks just numb. I had no desire to work, and I knew we would have a mountain of medical bills coming. All I wanted to do was be with Jody and our family. I was shocked. Why now? We're just getting things figured out. Scott and I threw our fears and anxieties to the Lord, asking him to just take it all, and we'll just be obedient. We prayed together all the time, seeking his direction and how we should proceed. I have always taken a holistic approach to healing. However, after many tests came back unfavorably, we hit a fork in the road. God made it very clear that I was to receive chemo and surgery as my treatment. I was devastated at his leading. So with a heavy heart, I proceeded the way that he wanted me to go, even though at the time I didn't understand why. My summer consisted of numerous surgeries and six months of chemotherapy. And during this time, God prompted us to go on the Israel trip with Pastor Jim. It seemed foolish to us and to many around us to go on such a journey at this time. We prayed for months about it, but it was evident that God's answer was go. So sandwiched between my last chemo treatment and more scheduled surgeries, we headed to Israel. Israel is a trip that's going to forever grow in my heart. There's just two things I wanted to stand I wanted to tell you that stand out to me. The first thing is we worshiped in Bethlehem on a Sunday. We were near a cave that may have been similar to the one that Jesus was born in. There was a Palestinian Christian tour guide that met us there to take us around that day. While we sat near the entrance of the cave, she began to teach us what the role of the shepherd is. She taught us how the shepherd calls his sheep by tapping his staff on the ground, or he may call to them and they recognize his voice. Then she asked us, what do you think a shepherd does with that sheep that continues to walk away from the pack, the sheep that doesn't answer the good shepherd's calling? She went on to explain what the shepherd does. The shepherd will go find that sheep and he'll twist his leg, or in essence, he breaks it. And then he'll carry that sheep on his shoulders wherever he goes. He'll nurse him back to health. And she went on to say that that sheep now knows to trust his good shepherd in all circumstances and not to leave again. That hit me right between the eyes. I now knew why God chose surgery and chemo for my path of treatment. He had to break my leg so that he could nurse me back to health. And now I trust my shepherd like I never could have with natural healing. And I'll never leave him again. The second thing that happened is there was an evening uh, in Jerusalem where we were eating dinner. I sat with a group of friends that included Jim Samra. We began a discussion on how sin in our lives can be a portal to sin in our children's lives. The Holy Spirit was working on me, and I knew it had something to do with the sin in my life that I had not confessed, and one of our children who had some behavioral issues. I asked Jim if I needed to confess this sin to a person, or could I just handle it with the Lord? Jim thought about it and said that I could handle it with the Lord. He didn't know what my sin was. We went into our debrief room for the evening to talk about our day. A friend in the group spoke up and said that he had a verse from James 5 that the Lord gave him, and he felt that someone in the room needed to hear it. Confess your sins to one another and be healed. I knew what I needed to do. So with a heavy heart, I poured out my confession to Scott that night in our hotel room. And I was so afraid that it was going to rock the amazing husband that he has been to me. But I was wrong. When Jody confessed to me, I was surprised at my own reaction. I thought I should have felt anger and disappointment. Instead, I felt more love for her than ever. I felt sorry that she was going through all of these circumstances. God was completely covering us with his grace, even in this. I believe that God used the diagnosis of cancer and the treatment of chemo to discipline me and to cause me to confess my sin. But through it all, I have felt nothing but love from the Lord. The grace is more than we can handle, and the blessing is truly more than we can shoulder. You see, we found out that Jody had cancer after we made our grace beyond pledge. 
We had prayed and stretched ourselves to make sure we could fill, fulfill the pledge the Lord was asking us to give. Personally, I was worried about how we were going to fulfill the, this pledge now. Many times I wondered if God was changing my life as he did in Job's. It's unexplainable what the Lord has done in less than a year. Although I took most of the summer off to go to every single one of Jody's appointments and to care for her, we have been able to pay all of our medical bills. God has also allowed us to fulfill our Grace Beyond pledge in full. I questioned before why God would prompt us to make such a pledge when he knew what was around the corner for us. God, who is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, taught me that obedience trumps business plans and common sense every single time. Also, I wasn't aware of the conversation that Jody had at her end of the table that night with Pastor Jim. I didn't know, I, I, I know she knew the confession of her sin could bring healing to our child. After we were home from Israel for a few weeks, I mentioned to Jody that our child seemed different. I wondered what had brought change in his life. Jody explained to me what she knew, that she knew what it was. It's now been nine months. He's still released from these uh, behavior issues and is, is so joyful and an amazing part of our family. Our marriage is completely restored and it elevated from where it began. Lastly, but not at least, that God has sustained Jody during this grueling chemo, through the grueling chemo treatments, and she stands here healthy today. You stay up here. Verse 14 of chapter 6 says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, you are under grace. And that is the truth of God, and that means that you will win. You will have victory. Scott and Jody have experienced God's grace. They have been winning. And the hope is, is that God is continually at work in you. He's continually at work in me. He's continually at work in Scott and Jody. And he does not let us remain where we are at because he continues to demonstrate his grace in our lives. Grace cannot lead to sin. Grace brings life and grace calls each one of us to action. It is my prayer this morning that because of today, you understand better how gracious, how gracious God is. And you live in that grace.